0: We've talked a great deal about the the patience that uh, David displayed in waiting for God to work out his purposes in his life. He was, he was anointed king when he was still a teenager, probably 15 or 16 years of age. And he did not ascend to the throne until he was 30. So for some 14, 15 years, he uh, waited and waited and waited for the Lord to come through. It occurred to me this last week as I was thinking about uh, that waiting process that there are really two ways to look at waiting. We wait on the Lord in prayer and intercession and supplication. We wait for him uh, to come through in his own time and in his own way. Uh, David's life is in marked contrast with Saul, who was forever pushing and shoving and manipulating and controlling you know, the, our word manipulate comes from the Latin word hands, manus, and it means get your hands on something. He was always trying to make things happen, control the events of his life. In contrast to David, who uh, was confident that God would in his own time and in his own way come through. Last week we sang that little chorus, uh, we must wait, wait, wait on the Lord, we must wait, wait, wait on the Lord, and learn our lessons well. And in his timing, he will tell us what to do, what to say, where to go. And that was, uh, that was David's uh, plight. He, uh, he just had to keep waiting and waiting and waiting. The text we looked at last week, Psalm 25, uh, in that poem, David said, God, you are my salvation. For you I wait all day. And then much later, after after he did become king, uh, at least in, in my opinion, it was much later, he wrote Psalm 40. Uh, that poem came out of his mellow old age when, as he looked back on his life and, and he saw what God had actually done through the waiting process. And he wrote, uh, I waited and waited and waited for the Lord. Our text simply says, I waited on the Lord, but uh, uses a particular form that that, that suggests repeated waiting. Kavo kavodi, he says. I waited and waited and waited and waited and waited on the Lord. And he inclined to me. He heard my voice. He brought me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my, in my mouth. All the way through there's this rock-solid confidence in God's ability to do what He's promised to do, either in this life or in the next. Not not everything turns out uh, as we would want it to turn out in this life, but uh, it will surely turn out. And for those of you that are oppressed in various ways and uh, experiencing uh, injustice of all kinds, one of these days our Lord's going to point you out of the in that great crowd that will be assembled before His presence, and say, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." Your reputation will be reestablished. That's what we wait for. May not happen here, but it'll surely happen there. Now, what we have in the text before us is an example of this—the of waiting game—and how it plays out in David's life, and uh, what was actually accomplished as David waited for the Lord waited on him in prayer and supplication and intercession, and waited for him to do what he had promised uh, to do. I want to begin reading with verse 1. I think of this as the uh, incident in the cave. It came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. So here David is betrayed again by his tribesmen, betrayed to uh, Saul. Uh, Saul was pursuing David with 3,000 of his uh, delta force, his picked elite choice young men. 3,000 of them against David's uh, 600. And David kept plunging deeper and deeper into the into the wilderness trying to evade uh, Saul. Saul had taken 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and had gone out to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. Uh, in Gedi is a, is a oasis. It, it is today. It's one of the few streams that flow from the west down into the, into the Dead Sea. Uh, it's a beautiful place even today. Well watered. Uh, the remnants of palm trees there and balsam trees that used to grace that uh, area. And shepherds would bring their flocks down out of the wilderness into the, uh, pastures on the eastern slopes of those uh, limestone cliffs there in that area. If, you, if you've ever been to Masada in Israel, you know what that country looks like. But right in the middle of this barren, bleak, broken wilderness is this beautiful little oasis of En Gedi. and right close to it is the spring that even today is called uh, in in David, uh, the, the spring of David. And we're told there are sheepfolds there. The shepherds uh, use these uh, huge caverns that are formed in the limestone cliffs as places to shelter their sheep at night from uh, the bitter cold in the wintertime, the heat in the summer, and a place where they could drive them at night so they'd be safe from predators. And they would usually rock up the entrances and they'd be safe there. David and his 600 men found uh, refuge in one of these huge, huge uh, caves. And Saul chanced to come by. Uh, poet Spencer says, it chanced, eternal God that chance did guide. You know, there, there are no, uh, no chance happenings in this world. Saul was pursuing David down through one of those canyons and David and his men were, uh, they were hiding in the cavern and they came by this, uh, this spot and, uh, We're told that Saul went in to relieve himself in that very cave. Uh, Heard the call of nature, and uh, he went into the cave thinking that he was all alone. Six hundred pairs of eyes were peering at him through the darkness as he unbuckled his uh, shield, and uh, unbuckled his uh, sword rather, and laid his shield aside and his spear, took his robe off. You know these stories; uh, these are wonderful stories. They have all the elements of good storytelling—you know, suspense and humor, and, uh, wonderful characterization and storyline. This is a, just a tremendous story. I'm amazed that more people don't preach on it. I can't recall anyone preaching on this uh, sur- this particular uh, incident. I suppose they wonder how they can get get around that line. Saul went in to relieve himself. Actually, the Hebrew uses an idiom that says he went in to cover his feet, whatever that meant. <laughs> and David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. They were way back in the dark recesses of the cave, you know. And Saul came in out of the blinding daylight, of uh, the sun reflecting off of those white limestone cliffs in that area. And his eyes weren't adjusting, he hadn't adjusted to the darkness. He couldn't see back into the corners of the cave, and here were David's men lined up around the outside of the cave watching Saul. And the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and he shall do to him as it seems good to you. One of David's men whispered in his ear, David, God has made your day. This is the day you've been looking for. He's delivered Saul into your hand. It's obvious. Look what's happened. Here we are by chance in this cave. And Saul shows up. And here he is undefended and in this most undignified position. And now's your chance. Now's your chance. David draws his knife. And he begins to pick his way across the rock-strewn floor of the cave, very stealthy. They could see David and Saul silhouetted silhouetted against the entrance of the cave, and they're all watching, and David pulls back his knife and slices off the end of Saul's robe. They thought that he would plunge that dagger right into Saul's back, and David just, as the text tells us, verse 4, he He cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. The knife must have been razor sharp. Not a sound. And it came about that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Isn't that amazing? Here's this incredibly tough, on occasion brutal, bloody man capable of uh, great violence and yet with a Tender heart, tough and tender man. Conscience that was sensitive to the word of God. Spirit of God just had to speak, and uh, his conscience was uh, pricked. It wasn't always true. There were times when David struggled with the truth, but he knew he knew what was right, and he knew on this occasion he had wronged Saul, he had dishonored his king, and he disobeyed Scripture. The Old Testament's very clear about the kind of honor that we should accord to those in positions of leadership. It, it, the Israelites knew. In the book of Deuteronomy, the uh, uh the Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses gave to Israel while they were camped on the plains of Moab waiting to go into the land and and in that uh in that series of teachings in chapter 17 there is what's called the law of the king. And uh Israel was told what kind of king they should uh, they should submit to. Uh, God knew that the time would come that they would want a king, like like all the other nations, and uh, it was God's will that they have a king. Uh, I, I hate to tell you this, that uh, God's number one choice of polities is not a democracy. It uh, works well in, uh, given the fact that we're a depraved, sinful bunch, but uh God's choice of uh, of politics is a monarchy, a benevolent monarchy, with a just and righteous and godly king in a position of authority. And he lays that out for Israel in Deuteronomy 17. He says, this, this is the kind of king I want you to have. First of all, it's someone that I choose. So the nations uh, around Israel chose their kings usually through bloody contests. So the pretenders fought their way to the throne by killing everyone else in their way. Or they simply handed the throne down through aristocratic families. God says that's not the way you choose your king. As a matter of fact, it's not the people's choice at all. I'm going to choose your king. That's why David is called a man after God's own heart. David was chosen of God, anointed by the prophets. It was true of all the kings of Israel. They did not choose their kings. God chose them. Spoke to the prophets. The prophets then anointed the king. And that king was, was God's representative in the nation. Secondly deuteronomy seventeen points out that the king is not to aggrandize himself he's not to uh, arrogate authority to himself he's not to uh, become pretentious lorded over people who used to be a serf he's to serve. Uh Moses said the other the other kings the kings of the nations, kings of the pagan Gentile nations around them around you will they tax their people and they, uh, they exact service from their people, but not your king. Your king will, will serve you. He'd be a humble man. That's why David rode around on a donkey. Uh, the other kings of that, of that day, uh, they, they were driven in a chariot pulled by stallions. Not David. Rode around on a little donkey with his feet dragging the ground. He understood. That's why Jesus chose a donkey, by the way, on that day that he uh, presented himself to Jerusalem as their king. He was humble, lowly, riding on an ass, Matthew says. The other other kings were riding around in limousines. David drove an old battered Volkswagen. a servant, a servant's heart. The third thing we're told about the king is that he was to be submissive to the law. That is the word of God. He was to read it every day and submit his heart to it. Again, that's quite different from the pagan nations. You've probably heard of Hammurabi's code and if you ever visit the Louvre in France, in Paris, it just, it's, it's found there in the museum. Hammurabi's at the top and uh, the sun god is shining on him and he's being commissioned to give the law. The kings gave the law. They were the law, but not in Israel. God gave the law and the kings were subject to the law. So. The purpose of kingship in Israel was to establish law and order and justice and to bring salvation to the world and to make civilization and culture possible. Civilization and culture is a gift from God. If we're not for the principle of authority and government, we would destroy ourselves. That's why it's Paul makes so much of this in Romans 13. I'm not going to read the passage, but it... In that text, Paul says that everyone that's appointed, every king that's appointed is appointed of God. And this was 54 A.D. Nero was on the throne. The Nero who uh, supposedly fiddled while uh, while Rome burned. Who probably burned Rome down and blamed the Christians for it. And Paul says submit to those that are in authority because even even a bad king is worse than no king at all. Even bad government is worse than no government. Because without, without that principle of authority in the world, we would tear ourselves to shreds. There are factors in, in society that would, that would tear us apart. Forces that we cannot cope with apart from government. And so it's still God's will. It's spelled out clearly in Romans 13 that God operates through human government, to maintain law and order and justice. And that's why Paul says that's why we pay taxes. That's why we pay duties. That's why we give honor and respect to those that are in positions of authority. Jesus said it too, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We may not agree with our government. We can address those that are in positions of leadership and try to redress the wrongs and speak to them about there are sinful ways, but we must always do so in a spirit of respect and submission and honor. That's the attitude of the heart, because they are there, not only by the permission of God, but by the appointment of God. We said, well, in our country, we elect officials. He even works through the electoral process to put people in positions of leadership that he appoints. Mr. Clinton is our king, if I can put it that way, by God's appointment. And while we may disagree with him, we must never be disrespectful of him. Andy Rooney had a wonderful segment here uh, a few Sundays ago. Some of you may have seen it. He talked about an Ohio farmer that he was uh, interviewing some years ago, and he had a picture of Richard Nixon on the wall. Remember the segment? And and Rooney said, uh, you must like Mr. Nixon. And he said, no, I don't like Mr. Nixon, but he's the president. Of the United States. So the picture goes on the wall and honor and deference and respect is granted. That's God's way. And here David had humiliated the king. He just, just cut the skirt off his, off his robe just, just to show that he could do it. So humiliated the king his conscience smote him. He went back to his men, and he said to them, I think you have to interject at this point some conversation, you know, Saul had not yet left, and so they were probably still whispering to one another, and they said, you missed your chance. And David said, far be it from me because of the Lord, See, his submission to his Lord, uh, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, that is the king, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to, ri- to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, uh, cave, and went on his way. Chronicles tells us that... Uh, at the time he was in the strongholds of En which is the region that he was in at this time. Uh, certain Danites, or Gadites rather, uh, uh, defectors from the tribe of Gad, joined him and they're described as brave warriors, ready for battle and able to handle the spear and the, and the sword. Their faces were the faces of lions and they were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. These were warriors. They were ready to take Saul out. And David restrained him. He says, "No, we're not going to touch the Lord's anointed. We're going to wait on the Lord. We're going to grant to Him the prerogative to set His King on His holy mountain of Zion. We're going to wait, and in His timing, He'll tell us what to do, what to say, where to go. We're going to wait on Him. That was the underlying philosophy of David's life. He didn't always get it right." But in his heart, he was willing to wait for God to work out his uh, His purposes. Now, what follows um, this instruction to his men is uh, David's plea to Saul, verses 8 through 15. Now, afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king, you know, to respect the deference that he gives to this man who is trying to kill him, who had been chasing him from... Pillar to post, who'd been uh, he'd been fleeing from Saul, as he put it, like a partridge on the mountains. This was the man that put a contract out on his life when he was still in the court, and yet David honors my lord the king. And you can imagine Saul's surprise when he turns around and he sees Saul, David, standing at the mouth of the cave with some of his men surrounding him, and he realized how how close he had come. To the end of his life. And when Saul looked behind him, probably expecting an arrow to come from the mouth of the cave, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men saying, behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said, kill you, but my eye had pity on you, and I said, I'll not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you... Are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord, listen to these words, may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. It's an echo of what he says in verse 10. I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. My hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. My hand shall not be against you. Uh, this is Jesus' parable. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. The evil person out of the evil of his heart brings forth evil things. Wickedness comes out of wickedness. Wicked acts come out of a wicked heart. If our attitude is one of honor and deference and respect, then we will show honor and deference and respect in our actions. Is in my heart toward you is pure. My hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom are you pursuing? After a dead dog? After a single flea? I can't hurt you, he's saying. There's nothing I can do to harm you. The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. May the Lord be judge and may he decide between you and me, and may his hand be against you, but... But mine will never be. That's what that's what the Bible calls meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. It is a refusal to take matters in our own hands. It it is a refusal to defend ourselves and protect ourselves, and avenge ourselves and bring uh, and and uh, exact revenge. We're we're always out of order when we do that. We always go too far. Revenge is sweet, except when it isn't, and and it isn't. Believe me, it always leaves that bitter taste in, in our mouths. Jesus says, "Come, learn of me. I'm meek. I'm non-defensive." Well, he answered the charges, unjust charges that people brought against him. He he denied them. He said they aren't true. He steadfastly denied them. He didn't play the fool. He didn't put himself in in positions of of danger. But when all was said and done and there was nothing he could do to protect himself, he gave up his rights to self-protection and he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Peter says we can learn from his example. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21. One of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, said that Jesus' greatest miracle, thinking of all the miracles that are recorded in the gospels, Jesus' greatest miracle is that he did not retaliate. Could have called forth millions of angels to his defense and he refused to do so did not retaliate. That's meekness it's not weakness it's strength under control. Something we can learn from our Lord he says he's the example in this regard. Uh, when people uh, treat us unjustly that's a grief to God. He knows and he cares. But that's a grief he has to carry. We can't uh, cope with it. We can't remove it. It's useless to retaliate or, or take revenge. We, we always get in God's way when we do. We, we impede the process. We need to pray with Augustine. Heal me, O oh God, he said. Heal me of this tendency, this lust of mine to always vindicate myself. We're so inclined to want to protect ourselves. When people abuse us, persecute us, say evil things against us, misrepresent us, we always want to defend and protect. And as I say, it's all right to deny the charges, to simply say, no, that's not true. It's not being defensive. It's simply being factual. But uh, when all is said and done and there's nothing more to be said, all we can do is entrust ourselves to... The God who judges justly. Alexander White, in his book on Elisha, says, Let them talk. Let them talk. Let them write. Let them correct you. Let them traduce you. That's an old word that means to expose to contempt or, uh, or to shame. Let them judge and condemn you. Let them slay you. Oh, the detestable passions that corrections and contradictions kindle up to fury in the proud heart of man. Eschew controversy as you would eschew the entrance into hell itself. Let them have their way. I would that Bobby Leinman had uh, listened to that counsel. Paul says, don't. Repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, so far as depends on, on you, live at peace with everyone. Some people uh, won't be peaceable. Some people won't leave us alone. But insofar as it has to do with you, Paul says, don't uh, stir up evil. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. He treads the winepress of his wrath alone, the prophet says. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. He'll feel shame. Sometimes. Not always. Doesn't always work that way. But in general, if you repay evil with good, the perpetrator, the person who does evil toward you, feels embarrassed, ashamed by their behavior. They have any conscience at all, touches it. Paul says, "Don't be overcome by evil, regardless of the evil that people are doing to you." Paul says, "Don't let it overcome you. Overcome evil with good. Gain by giving away. That's that's another one of those strange paradoxes in the Christian life. You don't know, gain by grabbing and grasping and defending yourself. You gain by giving away, just as our Lord did." Uh, I came across uh, uh, Robert uh, Fogham's little book, maybe, maybe not, the other day, just reading a section in it. Uh, it's called Time to Sacrifice the Queen. Some of you may remember that uh, particular uh, little essay. He says, I'm told that during an international competition several years ago, a man named Frank Marshall made what is often called the most beautiful move ever made on a chessboard. In a crucial game in which he was evenly matched with the Russian master player, Marshall found his queen under serious attack. There were several avenues of escape, and since the queen is the most important offensive player, spectators assumed Marshall would observe convention and move his queen to safety. Deep in thought, Marshall used all the time available to him To consider the board conditions, he picked up his queen, paused, and placed it down in the most illogical square of all, a square from which the queen could be captured by any one of three hostile pieces. Marshall had sacrificed his queen, an unthinkable move to be made only in the most desperate of circumstances. The spectators and Marshall's opponent were dismayed. Then the Russian and the crowd realized that Marshall had actually made a brilliant move. It was clear that no matter how the queen was taken, his opponent would soon be in a losing position. Seeing the inevitable defeat, the Russian conceded the game. Sacrificed the queen in order to win the game. When God was faced with that option, he sacrificed the king. Do you realize that? He sacrificed the king. The white witch knew deep magic from the beginning of the world, but Aslan had a deeper magic from before the beginning of the world, and he sacrificed the king. That's Aslan's how. That's how he brought salvation. He gave up everything in order to gain everything. And that's a great example to us that no matter what we're experiencing, no matter how much hostility is being heaped on us, We don't need to be fools. We can protect ourselves to the best of our ability, but ultimately we do not have to defend ourselves. We're in good hands. All we can do is entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. And either in this world or the next, he's going to set things right. I can't guarantee you that everything is going to work out well in this life. That's not the way this life is. But it's all going to work out someday. That's based on... uh, on God's promise, and uh, he doesn't lie. David's actions had a, a profound uh, effect on Saul. Verse 16, Now it came about when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice, and he wept. And he said, You're more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. And you have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will, will he let him go away safely? That's secular wisdom. Your enemy's in your hands. Uh, there's nothing sweeter than the dull thud of your enemy uh, hitting the concrete. Uh, this is the time to act. Normally, if a man finds his enemy, he'll not let him get away safely. May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Even David's enemy knew that God's justice would prevail. So now swear to me by the Lord that you'll not cut off my descendants after me and that you'll not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul. <clears throat> Saul's remorse is reminiscent of uh, Paul's words. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, even our Lord, sitting in the upper room, uh, well aware of, of uh, Judas' uh, treachery. He had it in his mind, his heart. Betray our Lord. The Lord, returned evil with good. Handed him the sop, reaching out to him one one more time to try to to draw him back in, to draw him to repentance. On this occasion, the goodness of God drew Saul to repentance. Not always so, and it didn't last very long. There's an interesting footnote. Saul went to his home. Verse twenty two. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. David was a godly man, but he wasn't a fool. Uh, He had that uh, motto, in God we trust, uh, everybody else pay cash. Um, He was uh, confident in God's ability, but he didn't trust Saul. He knew Saul's heart, and he would not uh, play the fool. Uh, the wise men the prov- in the proverb says, The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. Even though Saul seemed to have experienced a measure of remorse and had withdrawn, David was no fool. He just plunged further into the wilderness and waited for God to uh, deliver him in, in his time. There's an old uh, proverb, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. You know, the attitude that underlies all of this, and with this I'm done, is just this concept of waiting. It's waiting on the Lord. I waited and waited and waited on the Lord, David said, and he, he heard my cry, heard my cry. As I said in the beginning, there are two kinds of waiting. There's there's waiting on the Lord, which we do by prayer and supplication. There's waiting for the Lord, which is just that waiting for God to work things out in His own time and, and on His way and in His own way. And we have that confidence we have that confidence in God's ability to to treat us right, then we can rest, and it does some something for us. In the first place, it restrains us from sin. If we don't think God is for us then uh, who's going to protect us and so we we begin to do ungodly fleshly things in order to protect ourselves and we always make things worse. If David had not had that deep down confidence that God was on his on his side on his team and was working for him to accomplish his purposes, he would have taken David, uh, Saul's life and that would have been on his conscience to the end of his days. And later when Shimei that nasty little man that who was uh, of Saul's tribe and who was throwing rocks at him one day. I mean, literally throwing rocks at his head and and calling him a bloodthirsty man and accusing him of killing Saul and Jonathan and all of Saul's family. David's conscience was clear. Okay. Having that confidence to wait on, on God means that we can approach things in a more godly, righteous fashion and, and our consciences aren't blotted by By sin. Nothing to regret. Secondly, it can deliver others from uh, sin. It's a wonderful nobility about, about meekness and it, we remind people of, uh, will of God. (laughs) If I can put it that way. We leave behind the sweet aroma of Christ, as Paul would say. Have that unforgettable fragrance of God and it draws people to repentance. Uh, it did for Saul, at least momentarily. It can for others. It doesn't always. Sometimes their hearts are so hard that nothing will break through. But uh, it can draw others to uh, recognition of their sin and, and draw them to repentance. Third, it, it inspires others to faith. I, I, t- I talked to my men last uh, Wednesday about, about something I call the, the majesty of meekness. It's just something uh, noble about being non-defensive, to take the shots and to not respond defensively and self-protectively. It inspires others to uh, confidence in God. And then finally, uh, it relieves us of a lot of stress. If we feel that we have to set things right, that we are taking on an impossible assignment. And it will weary us no end. Let me read a psalm to you. Psalm thirty-seven. It was written in an earlier, at a later date, and David was much older. Looking back on uh, what he had learned through occasions like that occasion in the in the cave, uh, he had calmed himself, as he says, like a weaned child. He wasn't clamoring, wasn't insisting. Not eager for himself, but that God's purposes be done. And he put it like this. This is his instruction to us. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't expend your energy on anger directed toward others. Doesn't do any good. Don't hurt them. It just chews up your psyche and your insides. It's not worth it. It's good to acknowledge our anger because injustice does make us angry. And if we don't acknowledge it, it turns into rage and then resentment and then revenge. But uh, if we take our anger to the Lord and uh, just give it to him, offer it up to him, then he can begin to replace it with a sense of peace. He says, literally, he says, don't get heated up. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Well, they'll wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herbs. a sure thing. They're not going to last forever. Trust in the Lord and do good. That's what Paul said. Overcome evil, overwhelm evil with good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Just follow faithfully what the Lord is uh, telling you to do. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He'll do it. You'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your vindication as the noonday. Doesn't say he's going to set everything right, but your righteousness will stand out like the, like, uh, like the light and your righteousness like the sun at noon. He may not defend you fully in this life, but in the next your reputation will be clear. Rest in the Lord. Wait Patiently, If you look in the side note of the New American Standard Bible, it says longingly, desperately, wait desperately for the Lord. Uh, fret not yourself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It only leads to evil doing, That's what I was saying. So, yeah. We get angry and frustrated because people are treating us badly, then we take things in our own hands and we... We do monstrous things that we regret for the rest of our lives. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he'll not be there. He will be ousted by God. We don't have to take on that task. It's our Lord's prerogative. Only his power can accomplish that end. But listen to this, and this is, this is the line from which our Lord takes the beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed means happy. Happiness is being meek, non-defensive. Verse 11, but the meek will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Our Lord actually, uh, in his statement, he moves beyond this, this promise. This promise is that the meek will inherit the land. That is the promised land. Our Lord says that the meek will inherit the earth. They gain the most by giving up the most. They get the whole thing. It's like Abraham and Lot. Lot was given his choice of the land. He chose the best. So, as I've often said, he chose grass. Abraham chose grace. He let God decide for him. He gave away his right to the best part of the land. God gave him the whole thing. The whole land. And that's what Scripture tells us. If we just wait on him, he'll set things right. And we'll inherit the earth. We'll get it all in the end. And Jesus adds one word, and with this I'm done. You've heard that it was said, love your enemy and, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be mature. Even as your father is mature, be like God who uh, who loves people regardless of what they do and who does them good. it's the old poem goes, the rain it raineth on the just and on the unjust fellow. And the last line is, chiefly it raineth on the just because the unjust steals his umbrella. But uh point's well taken. God causes his reign not only of Literal rain, but his reign of joy and enjoyment of life to reign on the just and the unjust. He does, he returns evil with uh, with good. So our Lord pushes us one step further, not not just being non-defensive, but doing good to those that despitefully use us. Now I want to I want to give you an assignment for next week, if I may. This is actually something to work on through the whole week. I, I, get a pencil, a piece of paper out if you have it. I want you to write down, first of all, this question. Who is your Saul? Who is it that's giving you the gears these days? I want you to think of that one person. Secondly, what good and godly thing do you want for that person? David wanted repentance. Repentance. From Saul, more than anything, you wanted to see Saul restored to his, to righteous rule. What do you want for that person? Something that's good and, and godly. And then write out a prayer in which you ask for that good thing for that person. And then through the week, ask God to give you opportunities to facilitate that desire. Positive opportunities to move toward that person and nudge them toward God and, and His goodness, like Jesus reaching out with the sop toward Judas. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to be watchful for those wonderful opportunities that you give us to facilitate our desires for that others Seek repentance and all the good things that you have for them. Those occasions, uh, like David's opportunity in the cave, to show kindness to his enemy. Give us a chance this week, in some concrete way, to love our enemies. To pray for those that despitefully use us. To do good to those that wrong us. And to be part of the process that moves them toward... uh, toward repentance and faith. Heal our hearts, Lord, our souls from the hurts that come from others. Be to us that balm in Gilead that binds us up and relieves our pain and sets us free to care about others' disorder and pain. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.